Pontius Pilate, of all people, said when he had Jesus brought out to the people, it was Pontius Pilate that said, Behold the man. Ecce homo. Behold the man. The gospel writer, I think, was trying to make a point. And the point is demonstrated in this painting, a modern painting, French painting. We have the wrong one on this screen. So uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do about that. Uh, Well, I'll let Kathy figure that out. But this is the painting. If you can bring these lights down just a little bit. The artist in this painting was trying to make a point. And the point was that he was trying to get to the essentials of Jesus. As you can see, it's not a super realistic painting. This isn't the kind of painting that you take a look at and you say, oh, now that's exactly what he must have looked like. It's a painting that draws out some of the essentials that the artist wanted to get across to you. Some of the strength, some of the depth, some of the raw essence of Jesus Christ. It's entitled, Behold the Man in French. The artist is George Rualt, who lived uh, in, in this century, died in 1958. And he's trying to have us look at the man Jesus and see the essential nature of what he's about. One of the things I like about the strength of this is that I think it mirrors the strength of Jesus. Jesus was going along with his disciples one day and some of the religious people noticed that that Jesus' disciples, his students, were quite different than their students. Their students had all kinds of traditions lined up. And they kept those traditions. They kept them in great, with great uh, fervor and great zeal, and very, very, they're very particular about how their traditions were kept. Uh, Mark tells us they washed their hands, and they washed pots, and they washed cups in a certain manner, and he says, and they did all kinds of other things. There's a hint that maybe they've gotten bound up with all their traditions. But their traditions seem to them to be the essence, seem to them to be the raw truth of God. So they came to Jesus, this great teacher, this this great prophet. Some were even saying he might be the Messiah. And the religious teachers of the day came and asked a very reasonable question. How come your students don't keep the traditions of our people, the traditions of our ancient leaders? And Jesus said this to them. You hypocrites. It didn't get him off on a good foot. You hypocrites. The prophet was right about you when when he said that you worship God in vain, teaching as doctrine the, the traditions of men and setting aside the commandment of God for your traditions. Look again at the painting. Is that the kind of face of a man that would say something that stern to the most respected leaders of the day? It is. It's raw. It's tough. It's essential. It's the face of a prophet. In this case, the face of a suffering prophet. Because the context of this painting was right before he was to be put to death. And you see also some of the suffering. Strong and silent suffering. Jesus was trying at least 
to bring his own people, the Jewish nation, back to the essentials of who God was. And so I want to raise a question this morning. Our theme for the, for the semester is what does it mean to be a follower, a student, a disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, certainly it would mean at least, at the very least, at a bare minimum, knowing what Jesus thought the essentials were. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record it very clearly. John, I believe, having read two or perhaps all of the three of those in writing his gospel, framed it a bit differently, but I believe said the same thing in different words. If you'd asked any of the early students of Jesus, what was his essential teaching, they could have answered it like that. Now, the interesting thing is I've asked thousands of people this question, and I've had them write down their answers, people like you. People older than you, but people like you, students, people at retreats, conferences that I, I'm privileged to speak at. And you know what I find? I find that good, solid, church-going Christian people don't answer it the way Jesus does. Now, to be sure, their answers are really quite good. The things that they say are essential are, are very, very important. They're certainly right, very close to the core. But Jesus was asked this question on many occasions... We have numbers of them uh, uh, told to us in the scripture. And he always answered the question exactly the same way. We sang it this morning. John composed this, the, the context of that, that song for us to sing it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On this hang all of the law and the prophets. Jesus only says that about two things. We'll look at the other later this semester. He only says it twice. On this hang all of the law and the prophets. He's saying it's like if you had uh, 400 dominoes lined up across here and you had the goal of getting them all knocked over. There's two ways to go at it. You can go... 400 times, or you can go down to the end one and push it this way, and all the rest go. Jesus said, if you get this one thing right, the rest will happen. If you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself, all of the law and all of the prophets will go down and be fulfilled in a growing way in your life. So it's really quite clear what Jesus thought was the essential. It was to love his father whom he came to reveal and to love him intellectually. We focus on that here at Westmont College. You're privileged as only 1% of the entire world are privileged to be able to have discipline for your mind for four years be your primary vocation. If we were a village of 100 people, I told this to our entering fresh... Uh, First-year students, getting used to that new term. That if we were a village of 100 people, there would only be one in this village who would get a college education. If the whole world was a village of 100 people, only one would get the education you're getting. The point of that education is to help you love God with all your mind. C.S. Lewis said if you're going to love God, it takes brains and all. You don't set your brains aside and then love God with your heart. You love him with all of your heart. You love him with all of your mind. You love him with all of your soul and all of your strength. That's the essence. 
But how do we do that? That sounds great. It's quite clear, at least. It's simple in its clarity. But how do we do that? John, in thinking about it many years later, tells us what he thinks is the way, the secret to beginning to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it's quite different than you might expect. I think most people would say, well, you need to get at prayer. You, you need to get at good works. You need to get at justice. You need to get at holiness. You need to get at reading the scriptures. All, in my opinion, very, very important disciplines in the spiritual life. But it's interesting what John says. As he's an elder, literally, he's an old man. And he says this. In chapter 3 of his first letter, the first verse, and then I'm going to read some verses from chapter 4 as well. Listen to what he says. Picture John, an old man, the only apostle who lived to a natural death. The rest were sawn in two and boiled in oil and thrown into sacks and then thrown into the ocean and crucified upside down. All for saying that they had decided to follow Jesus Christ with their entire life. John was the only one who died a natural death. And as he was an old man, this is what he said. As he looked back, he said, How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. Listen to those words. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. God is love. And this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love, and there's no fear in love. We love because he first loved us. John is saying, it's, it's not just knowing that God loves you, as important as that is. And we should think through the love of God as best we can. But he said, that isn't enough. As important as that is, you must know, trust and rely upon the love that the Father has for us. It's not that we sit around at Westmont College and say, let's love God with all our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. Okay, let's get at it. Now, the first point is to come and behold the man. To see how the Father has lavished his love on us. That he sent his son. That he came, that he, that he spent those nine months in the womb, that he went through that birth, that he went through that life, that he studied just like you're studying, that he prepared himself for 30 years before he began his public work, that he taught that he was rejected, that he was betrayed by a close friend, that he was unjustly convicted of a crime that he was crucified, that he died, that he descended into hell, that he rose again. God did this for the love of you. It puts to rest one question, do you have any worth? This culture tells you you really have no worth. That's why if push comes to shove and there's two of us there 
and one gets the plug pulled and the other doesn't, in our culture, it says there's no essential difference between the two and neither are worth much. So just figure out which one is the easiest to do it to. The good news of God is that you are unique. You are loved. You've, been, you've had the Son of God sent for you, lived for you, taught for you, died for you, rose for you. Don't ever doubt your worth again. Henri Nouwen, a great writer, in my opinion, and thinker in this century, chaplain and teacher of pastoral theology at Yale, who later in his life, after teaching at Harvard and Yale, decided to go and work with mentally handicapped people. And for the last 10 years of his life, he went from the cream of the crop intellectually to people, as he said, whose biggest question was, Henri, will you be home for dinner tonight? And he worked with adults who were mentally handicapped the rest of his life. He just passed away this year. He wrote a number of wonderful books, but the last one he wrote, literally just before he died, is called Life of the Beloved. And in it, I think he gets at some truths in an amazing way. Let me read a section to you. He's writing it as a letter to a Jewish friend of his to talk about the spiritual life. And this is what he says. Ever since you asked me to write for you and your friends about the spiritual life, I've been wondering if there might be one word I would most want you to remember when you finished reading all I wish to say. And over the past year, that special word has gradually emerged from the depths of my own heart. It is the word beloved. Beloved. And I'm convinced that it has been given to me for the sake of you and your friends. Being a Christian, I first learned this word from the story of the baptism of Jesus of Nazareth. It says in the scriptures, no sooner had Jesus come up out of the water than he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit like a dove descending on him. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son, the beloved. My favor rests on you. This has led me to the inner conviction that the words, you are my beloved, revealed the most intimate truth about all human beings. That we are the beloved. If that's true, that right now where you sit in Murchison Gym, 1997, that right now, whether you're following Christ or not following Christ, whether you smoked up last night or you studied, whether you slept with your boyfriend or girlfriend or didn't this weekend, right now you are the beloved of God. And you say, wait a minute, I can understand all the folks that didn't do those things maybe. No, the good news is you are beloved of God because his love for you comes from himself. It doesn't come from your performance. The only way to get on in the spiritual life is to begin to start at the point where God starts. And it says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He loved the world in this manner. The manner of going to the cross. Behold the man. So you're beloved right now. But there's a second truth about you. 
You're loved deeply. You're loved just as you are. That is essential to the gospel. But there's another thing about all of us. And that is that we're not only beloved, we're also broken. Whoops. And we're also having my notes fly all over the place. You're beloved, but you're also broken. You know, I opened the paper this morning. It doesn't take much to find an illustration of our brokenness. Suicide bombs rip Jerusalem street. Seven dead, 190 wounded. Right next to it, a picture of Prince Charles and Prince Henry as they look over tributes to Princess Diana. We could go on and on and on. One of the central problems in the world is alienation. We're alienated from the beloved God who loves us. We're alienated from one another and we're alienated from ourselves. We have a distorted view of God, we have a distorted view of one another, and we have a distorted view of ourselves. Some of us think too highly of ourselves. Others of us think too lowly. And most of us don't think about anybody else much at all. A friend of mine used to say, you should quit worrying about what other people think about you if you realized how seldom they do. You're broken. But you're beloved. Let me read one more passage from now on, on brokenness that I think uh, sums it up beautifully. He says this to his, his Jewish friend and their friends who are really uh, sort of classic postmodern young people. He says this, The moment has come to talk about our brokenness. Fred, you are a broken man. I am a broken man. And all the people we know or know about are broken. That's pretty profound. You're broken. I'm broken. And everyone we know or have known about is broken, including this man. Only one important difference. He was not alienated from God, from himself, or from others, except when he took the curse upon us, upon himself. And he was literally broken with our brokenness, not his own. So you're beloved, and you're beloved in your brokenness. Alienated from God, from self, from people. And Jesus comes in that setting, and he comes to two people I want to read about. They were two sisters. You remember them. They're Mary and Martha. And Mary and Martha were good friends of Jesus. Mary and Martha's brother was Lazarus. And you'll remember that Jesus came to their home. And as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where there was a woman named Martha, and she opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Mary was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about so many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. In this painting 
a very realistic painting. In fact, one of the points of the artist, I believe, is to draw us into the painting by the very reality of the characters. It's a Dutch artist, Johannes Vermeer, around the time 1655. And you'll notice in the painting, you have Jesus sitting there, and unlike how I've heard this preached on before, Jesus is not scolding Martha in the painting. And Martha, at this point, at this snapshot, it's one of the beautiful things about a painting, you catch an, inst an instant in the, ex in the experience. At this moment, Martha holding the basket with the bread, the thing she's so busy about, so worried about only moments before, if the painting had been painted 30 seconds before, her brow would have been knit and she would have had anger and frustration in her face. But now it's more like a dazed confusion. She doesn't quite get what he's saying. But she's in the process of setting down her basket. And look at Mary at the feet. Quite different than Martha. She's not distracted. She's not confused. She's quite content. She has her head resting gently in her hand. And Jesus is pointing to Mary at his feet. The one who's listening. The one who has the one thing right. The one who at this very moment is loving God in the person of Jesus Christ with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength. Who is sitting at the feet of Jesus in her brokenness, in her sin, in her struggle, in her fears, in her doubt. She's sitting at the feet of the one who calls her beloved. And Jesus says to Mary, the worried one, I mean Martha, the worried one, Mary has chosen the better part. And I won't take it from her. We're not going to take it from her. The painting and, the, and, and the, the, the passage in the scriptures is meant to call us to the same question. Are we as centered on Jesus Christ as Mary is in this painting? Or are we like Martha? You know, Martha's scurrying, Mary's sitting. Martha's in a frenzy, Mary is content. Martha's talking, Mary's listening. Martha's tense, Mary's open. Martha's distracted, Mary undisturbed. Martha confused, Mary is intent on one thing. Martha is into comparing. Mary is lost in one focus. Martha wants Mary to stop. Jesus says no. The invitation is for her to set down her basket of breads and join in. So where are you in this painting? When you think about the person of Jesus Christ, when you think about the love that God has for you, that he's lavished on you in Christ, are you scurrying about in your life? Are you, I think, by the way, uh, distraction is, is the greatest hindrance to the gospel in, in the 20th century North America. You know, we don't even jog and enjoy uh, some silence. We have headsets on. You know, what does a headset say as you're jogging along? It says, don't interrupt me. I'm listening to music. I don't actually want to talk to a person here. I don't actually want to hear birds sing. I want Twyla Paris. I, I, I don't want to interact with you. I want to close in on myself. What, do you have many choices this weekend on what to do? You've got thousands. So it's very hard for people in our day and age to sit and to listen and to experience our own belovedness. 
But that's an essential in the mind of Jesus Christ. I'd like you to close your eyes for a moment and enter prayer in silence. And I'd like to read something, and then John is going to come and close off in music today. But first, I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And I'm going to do a short reading from Nowen's book, where, in a fictionalized way, but based on scriptural truths and, and scriptural statements, Nowen puts these words in the voice of Jesus, speaking them to all of us. So find yourself in the presence of Christ right now. Sit at his feet like Mary and listen to these words of his. I've called you by name from the very beginning. You are mine and I am yours. You are my beloved. On you, my favor rests. I have molded you in the depths of the earth and knitted you together in your mother's womb. I've carved you in the palms of my hands and hidden you in the shadow of my embrace. I look at you with infinite tenderness and care for you with a care more intimate than that of a mother for her child. I've counted every hair on your head and I've guided you at every step. Wherever you go, I go with you. Wherever you rest, I keep watch. I will give you food that will satisfy all your hunger and drink that will quench all your thirst. I will not hide my face from you. You know me as your own, as I know you as my own. You belong to me. I'm your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your lover, your spouse, yes, even your child. Whenever you, wherever you are, I will be. Nothing will separate us. Stay in prayer.